Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com and by Hancock Whitney. Hancock Whitney is here for families, here for businesses, here for communities during this challenging time. Visit HancockWhitney.com slash COVID-19 for the latest. And by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. Welcome to this special edition of Out to Lunch Louisiana. I'm Peter Raschuti in New Orleans. I'm Christian Mater in Lafayette. And in Baton Rouge, I'm Stephanie Regal. Normally, we're the hosts of Out to Lunch in our respective cities, but during the course of the current public health crisis, we're joining forces from our respective home studios to bring you a statewide look at what's happening in the world of business and finance. Some businesses in Louisiana are beginning to open, but restaurant dining rooms are still closed. In Lafayette, when the French press reopens, we'll go back to hosting Out to Lunch there. Until then, they're doing curbside takeout, and you can get the regular French press menu items or a family dinner delivered through Waiter or Grubhub and directly from the restaurant, 337-233-9449. In New Orleans, the restaurant that normally hosts out to lunch, Commander's Palace, is closed, but their wine cellar is open for pickup or Orleans Parish delivery with over 35,000 bottles for sale. Find out more at commanderspalace.com. Here in Baton Rouge, Mansur's on the Boulevard is open for pickup and delivery. You can order by calling them at 225-923-3366. Whenever we get into any kind of real serious financial trouble like the recession of 2008 or the economic slowdown we're in now, we're confident the world is not coming to an end. The reason we're so certain that the financial system is not going to crash is because we believe the Fed is not going to let it. The Federal Reserve is a central bank of the United States. It's actually a series of 12 Federal Reserve banks. Here in Louisiana, we're in the Federal Reserve 6th District. It's anchored by the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. The vice president and regional executive of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta is Adrian Slack. Adrian, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me. I want to start by taking you back to a statement the chairman of the Fed, uh, Jerome Powell, made on April 9th. He said, the Fed will provide up to $2.3 trillion in loans to support the economy. This funding will assist households and employers of all sizes and bolster the ability of state and local governments to deliver critical services during the coronavirus pandemic. In other words, on April 9th, the Fed gave the United States $2.3 trillion. Now, the Fed is not actually printing money, but on April 9th, it did, in fact, create $2.3 trillion that didn't exist on April 8th. Can you explain how that works? Well, that's, uh, in a sense, the beauty of being the central bank. So there are a couple of ways uh, that this happens today. As you mentioned, we're not necessarily printing money. Where would you store that much money, for example? A lot of that happens digitally today. So as the Fed, um, there are a number of programs that we have rolled out since uh, the pandemic, and uh, we are being backed or funding those in a couple of ways. So some of those instruments that we are using to support the credit markets and, and what you're referring to specifically is municipalities, um, some of those things are, uh, have the backing of the Treasury. Uh, so the Treasury is actually providing the equity there uh, and is the backstop <clears throat> for the Fed. 
other instruments that we have, that money's created digitally. Uh, so when we decide, for example, that the economy needs us to support uh, it through additional monetary policy measures, we can provide currency and inject that into the system uh, to make that available to ensure that, in this case, the plumbing uh, of, the, of the financial system of the U.S. is flowing correctly. Um, but it, it is the magic of, of being the, the central bank in some sense. Uh, it's not unique to the Fed. It's uh, something, some, it's the purpose of a central bank. One of and you want to look at the tools you have on hand. You have, uh, you've got moving of interest rates, the reserve requirements. Are, are they all being implemented now? Uh, yes. Yeah, so we began with the interest rates as you started. One of the things we learned after the financial crisis uh, is that moving boldly and quickly um, would be a, a very effective measure in, an, in another downturn. So we have taken those lessons and exercised that here. So interest rates are near zero. In addition to that, we took a number of the lending facility tools that we utilized after the financial crisis and also stood them up within a number of weeks. Since that time, we have, as you mentioned earlier, um, entered the world of supporting municipalities, supporting um, the, the corporate financial markets in a larger way. Uh, we are involved with the PPP and the Main Street Lending Program uh, that resulted a, uh, from the CARES Act. So some of the things we have the power to do independently, and some of them we are doing um, at the instruction of Congress uh, in uh, combination with the Treasury. Adrian, this is Stephanie. How, how much, I mean, I guess at what point would the Fed reach their limit, if that doesn't sound too, too stupid a question. I mean, is, is 2.3 trillion is a lot. How much more assistance can it go before things get really out of whack? So 2.3 trillion is a lot. Um, and I, I mentioned the treasury earlier. And so some of the lending we are doing, again, has the treasury's equity as that backstop. And we're a long way from reaching uh, the end of what the Treasury has from an equity perspective. The Fed is prepared to do uh, what we need to do um, and use the extent of the tools in our toolbox to support this crisis, which is essentially a health crisis uh, that is impacting the economy because of the measures that we're taking to respond to the health crisis. So you mentioned that interest rates have, you know, are near zero. They've been pretty low for a long time. And I mean, that even before the pandemic, this was something that, like I said, become a matter of political dispute. The President of the United States even put pressure on this. I mean, it does sort of raise this question, if, if the economy can function this well at low interest rates, why do we even bother raising them? Well, they, the monetary policy tools that the Federal Reserve has um, really stem back to our um, dual mandate from Congress, and that's price stability and full employment. And so part of how we uh, interact with the economy through monetary policy uh, is, the, is the interest rate. It's, it's one of our uh, most significant tools, but it's a very blunt instrument. Uh, so the financial crisis in 2008 was very severe, and we needed to drop interest rates um, to the levels uh, that they, they were dropped, even at that time, close to zero, to ensure that we were um, providing an environment where the economy could grow, where businesses could borrow uh, to build and to employ workers, for example. 
Uh, that money that we injected at that period of time, part of why interest rates have remained low and have not um, increased like you would think they would is because a lot of that, that money went into uh, banks to help build their capital. Uh, so if you think about it from the aspect of the money we put in the system is meant to generate business. In this particular case, what happened after the financial crisis is a lot of that money um, went into the bank's balance sheet. Uh, and as a result, banks today are in a very stable position going into this crisis uh, and have the ability to lend in this crisis because of that. So is there a risk that interest rates could increase uh, from that activity? Uh, yes, uh, we're a far way from that, and we are committed to keeping interest rates uh, low to support the economy recovering from this event for as long as they need to be. Uh, and then at some point, we will respond uh, with interest rates moving in the other direction is, uh, to ensure the economy doesn't overheat. Um, so your question of why do we bother, it, at some point, you need to encourage economic activity, and at some points, you need to um, really pull back the reins on that economic activity so you don't overheat the economy and um, get into an unhealthy environment. And that's one of the things you keep hearing in the financial press now is that these actions are certainly necessary, they're helpful, uh, but will it lead to a lot of inflation down the road, which we haven't seen for years? What do you think? Well, again, I'll never say never, um, but certainly we are a long way from that uh, at the moment. Uh, you know, the we'll take the price of oil, for example. Uh, there is a very much downward pressure on the price of oil today, stemming from a number of things, but too much supply, basic economics, uh, is, is generating a lot of that downward pressure. Uh, for interest rates to increase and accelerate, you really have to have, um, if you think about where we were prior to this crisis, we were in a very healthy place. We were, um, had, close to full employment, I think, by a lot of people's measures. There was still some work to do. Um, the banks were healthy. Uh, the, the economy was growing. And interest rates were, were pretty well anchored, uh, not quite at our 2% target, but close to it. Uh, and this being a health crisis causing an economic crisis, you know, I, I again, I'll never say never that they're not going to spike up, uh, spike up but we well handled and managed that process after the financial crisis, and I have every confidence we will uh, manage coming out of this one in the same manner and use our power of monetary policy uh, to increase interest rates to prevent that from coming when the time is right. Uh, we are nowhere near the time being right at, at this point. Adrian, real quickly, because you've mentioned that a couple of times, we're, we're a long way away from that. You know, we don't have to worry about that yet. Can you give us, can you quantify that time? How much time before we have to worry about inflation or before we have to worry about printing too much money? You know, so I've, I'm, I'm asked that question a lot. How much time? Um, and, and unfortunately, certainty is not something we have with this particular crisis. Um, what, I, what I can say is what I have said, and is that we are prepared to use our monetary policy tools as long as they are needed to the full extent uh, that we can to support uh, U.S. business and families uh, through what has been an unprecedented uh, and very um, troublesome event uh, for many that, that are suffering from this event. You know, I, I will 
I will also add, while I don't have a time frame, many of those that have been impacted by this event are those who um, are, are the least able to withstand an, an, an economic hit to their family budgets, their business budgets. Uh, and we want, we were in a very good place from an economic perspective for those individuals to um, uh, be employed and uh, doing very well. And we want to turn, return to a place where, where that is possible again. So while I don't have the answer, um, we, we will be here as, as long as it takes. Adrian Slack is Vice President and Regional Executive of the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta. Adrian, thank you so much for joining us today on Out to Lunch, Louisiana. You're very welcome. You're listening to a special edition of Out to Lunch, Louisiana with Peter Raschuti in New Orleans, Stephanie Regal in Baton Rouge, and I'm Christian Mader in Lafayette. You know, nothing sums up the strange and unprecedented economic times we're living in more than what's happening in the oil industry. Maybe there's a fiction writer somewhere who imagined the day oil would become a worthless commodity that you had to pay someone to haul away like garbage. But I doubt there is an economist on earth who saw that day coming, or even the days we're living in now where we're discussing what's called $20 oil, that is oil that sells for $20 a barrel. The problem is Louisiana's independent oil producers need $37 a barrel to break even, according to the Louisiana Oil and Gas Association. They're warning that $20 oil could kill off the energy business in Louisiana if prices stay that low for long, and things weren't going so well for the industry going into the pandemic. Keep in mind that the reason this matters is the energy industry in Louisiana directly employs 30,000 people and supports thousands of other jobs in adjacent industries. Altogether, that accounts for $2 billion in annual state taxes. So whatever happens to the oil business in Louisiana affects us all. So what exactly is happening today in the Louisiana oil business? Well, Gifford Briggs is the guy who gets to answer that question. Gifford is the president of the Louisiana Oil and Gas Association. Uh, Gifford, the oil industry has always been boom or bust. Uh, things were slumped a little before the pandemic, and there didn't seem to be any good reason to believe a boom was on the other side of it. So it looks like we're going to need a more robust survival strategy than, well, let's wait for better times to come around. Uh, you've pushed for some near-term relief based on long-term policy goals for the industry, lower taxes, cutting environmental regulations, ending coastal lawsuits, but the scale of this problem is immense so long as commerce is depressed and the baseline outlook wasn't so great either. Beyond the legislative agenda, what is the industry going to do to stay afloat? Well, I mean, you know, I think that uh, the, the oil and gas industry is doing the same thing that any other business would do when you see the value of your product, you know, drop by over 80 percent and that uh, you start looking at ways to uh, cut costs and, and tighten your belt. Um, and then you begin looking at, you know, uh, essential employees and workforce. And is there an opportunity here to to, you know, eliminate some positions and maintain key personnel? Uh, you know, the reality when prices are as low as they are, we're producing less. We're certainly not investing and in drilling new wells. See, the challenge we have is that, you know, if prices rebound and we let everyone go, you know, we're, we're going to need that workforce back. And oftentimes, you know, people go into other, you, you lose key people or they go into other industries and you can't get them back. And so our focus as an association, uh, you know, representing the industry is is try to to figure out what we can do, what policies we can put in place to sort of provide a bridge in the short term under these these crazy times to be able to to get us so that we are uh, prepared to help move Louisiana forward once we once we come out on the other side. Yeah, I'm curious about that workforce component. I mean, you know, I think broadly speaking, not just in the oil industry, you know, um, any sort of 
any sort of manufacturing business that requires some blue collar labor, I mean, we're seeing them rely less and less on, on workforce. I mean, is this not still sort of part of an existing trajectory, right? Where we're expecting that, you know, producers are going to get, like you said, more efficient. And that can often mean smaller payrolls, even in decent times. Well, I mean, look, our, our industry is no different than that. I mean, we're producing, or, you know, prior to COVID, we were producing more oil than just about ever in our history. And we were doing it with fewer rigs than we've used before because of advancements in technology and horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing. Um, many times while we have less rigs, the number of people that are involved on a, on a particular project, uh, that number ne hasn't necessarily gone down. So while it's fewer rigs, um, it's, it's the same number of people that are working. And, and so, you know, yes, we're getting more efficient. We're using technology, but most of the time that technology is resulting in, you know, we didn't really have to worry about horizontal drilling and hydraulic fracturing in the 1980s. We just drilled traditional vertical wells. And so there's a whole new service component that goes along uh, with, with these massively expensive horizontal wells that, that we're doing to produce all of the shale out in West Texas and in the Haynesville here in Louisiana. Gifford, this is Peter. I, in the oil field, you often hear the expression, uh, the best cure for low oil prices is low oil prices. Uh, is that still true? Uh, is there a good case scenario going forward? Well, you know, normally what happens when you have low oil prices is you have low gasoline prices. The economy starts booming because people take advantage of cheap energy and cheap energy is great for an economy. I mean, just generally across the board, you know, when you've got cheap energy prices that, you know, families are out there driving, they're traveling, everything becomes less expensive. There's more money in pockets. You know, the challenge for Louisiana is it's just a little bit of the reverse because of, of the impact that the industry has. So normally low prices drive demand up. The challenge is now is that we have low prices and gasoline's a dollar, you know, 50 or 89 cents in some places. And that's great. You can far up, but then it just sits in your driveway because you're stuck at home. You're not able to travel. The cruise ships are parked. The planes are parked. And so the things that people would normally do in response to low energy prices, they're not allowed to happen. And so we don't see that the prices moving in the right direction like we normally would uh, because of increased demand with, with low, low cost fuel. Gifford, um, this is Stephanie. And, you know, we, especially in, in Baton Rouge, a lot of the growth over the past five years in the industrial construction sector has been fueled by low natural gas prices. And low natural gas was such an attractive feedstock because of, you, you know, proportionate to oil prices, it was so much lower. But now the oil is so low, there's not that much demand for natural gas. Am I wrong? And what does it do to that whole piece of this pie, you know, this puzzle? Yeah, so you, that's a great point, and we're seeing that reflect in our LNG industry as multiple projects that were planned for construction have been put on pause or pulled down entirely because the spread between oil and gas is is not high enough. And you know, when when you know, there's an eight to one energy content, so a barrel of oil has you know uh, eight times as much energy as is. Uh, an MCF of gas. And so you typically over time see a large spread there to make sense. Well, when you can get, you know, uh, oil for $23, then it, it, you know, you may not want to have to pay the, the cost for importing LNG and converting that over. So it makes oil globally a, 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 a better product and provides more energy and more opportunity than natural gas does at these prices. And so, you know, we need oil to go back up to 35, 40, $45, $50 and keep natural gas around too, so that we have an opportunity for a thriving LNG industry. Uh, and again, I'm not, you know, 
I don't know when we're going to get back there. I guess at some point in time we will. But so, so Gifford, this is Christian again. I, I, you know, we, we've heard some economic analysts, right, who you know, they look at the widespread, uh, you know, there's no better word for it, you know, economic devastation out there. And they say, well, you know, we're not sure that this is going to sustain for the long term, meaning that they expect maybe later in the year things will right size because people will start buying things again, right? When you guys are looking at um, the arc from here on out, say the, the, toward the end of the year, is the expectation that consumption will remain really low such that the supply problem continues to be the primary issue? Or, or are you guys expecting that those economists might be right and we'll see something uh, of a quicker spring back? It's hard to predict just because we have no idea what we're looking at. I mean, we put you know hundreds of millions of barrels of oil into storage um, and we have a ton of refined product in storage. And so it's going to take us a while you know, to eat through, you know, what we've stored up. And I think the real question is going to be is, is, yeah, I mean, look, if, if I mean, yeah, are people going to get out and start driving? Sure. Are they going to get on a cruise ship? Are they going to be ready to go to Disney and in a park with, you know, thousands of other people? And so that's the question about how fast does consumer confidence come back at that level? And it almost feels like it's probably going to get there around October or November which is when everyone is also predicting the second wave of, you know, COVID-19 or COVID-20 or whatever it'll be called to come in. And so I guess the question is going to be is how fast does it recover? How fast does everyone feel comfortable returning to their pre-COVID life? Um, and then, you know, are we prepared cure or vaccine or whatever we need to, to weather the next, um, you know, flu season or Corona season or whatever it is, because, you know, if we get all the way to October and it's building up great, but then start people start getting sick again and we have this same reaction again globally, um, then it's just going to be maybe we're in for a much longer term cycle before people really feel confident returning to their lives, getting on planes, you know, taking their grandparents on a cruise of, of, of their lifetime. And, you know, those are the things, the markers that I'm looking at to say, when is it going to come back? And my wife's a travel agent, so we're living it on a daily basis and seeing where people's comfort level is right now. So let's say this plays out for a couple more years, Gifford, worst case scenario. What, what happens then? Um, I mean, y'all are looking for, for tax breaks and things like that and pushing for, you know, cutting the industrial tax exemption, the severance taxes. But I mean, that's not really going to do the trick. That's just a little bit of relief here and there. Right. No, I mean, look, the, the, the measures that we're looking at in this legislative session are, you know, I, I say bridges because we always talk about natural gas as a bridge fuel. But, you know, these are emergency type measures where we're looking to infuse capital into producers as fast as possible so they can keep wells flowing. Um, you know, we, we got our study that just came out uh, released yesterday um, indicated that 80 percent of the producers have already taken steps to start shutting in production. And once we start shutting this, uh, some of this production in, um, you know, we have the risk of losing leases. Some of the wells, just because of the, of the geology, may never be able to be brought back into production. Some of them are going to need a, a significantly higher price of oil in order to make the investments to bring them back. And so that just sort of slows our recovery down. So we need these, we need, we need these measures, the legislature, to try and bridge this recovery. Gifford Briggs is president of the Louisiana Oil and Gas Association. Gifford, thank you so much for joining us and Out to Lunch, Louisiana. Thank you all. Thank you very much.
You're listening to a special edition of Out to Lunch Louisiana with Christian Mater in Lafayette, Peter Raschuti in New Orleans, and I'm Stephanie Regal in Baton Rouge. No matter which part of the state you live in, you've survived disasters from catastrophic downturns in the oil business to biblical floods and storms. One of the most cataclysmic of these in our lifetime was Hurricane Katrina. New Orleans was brought to its knees in a way that, till it happened, had only existed as a theoretical worst-case scenario. Beyond the threat to life itself, hardship like that and the crisis we're going through now creates enormous suffering. It also creates heroes. After Katrina, one of those New Orleans heroes was Blake Haney. Blake is the owner of a business called Dirty Coast. Dirty Coast makes hip t-shirts with a New Orleans flavor. After Katrina, they also made a sticker that said, be a New Orleanian wherever you are. Dirty Coast was then a small store, but demand was so great for those stickers, Blake gave away around one million of them. And the reason I'm bringing this up is that the slogan united a far-flung diaspora of New Orleanians and captured the resilience that directly re-led to the rebuilding of the city. Today, Dirty Coast has four outlets and a significant e-commerce component. Blake still runs the company. He's also the co-founder of Locally.com, a nationwide e-commerce site that drives consumers to brick and mortar stores and Bayou Brands, an e-commerce and product development consultancy. Blake, there are very few thought leaders who have actually been on the front lines of rebuilding a shattered economy. You're one of them. What lessons did you learn last time that we can apply right now to rebuild the local, state, and even national economy? Well, hi. Thanks for having me on. Um, I, I'd say that uh, my experience with with Dirty Coast um, was a mixture of well, well, like like lots of sort of startups, was was some luck. It was good timing because we were already building and developing the brand, you know, probably nine months to a, or a year before uh, the federal levy failure and. It, it was something was already in the works. We were already planning on developing products that were about the city. And it just so happens that when Katrina occurred, there was a, uh, a, a need for uh, sort of bringing people together, sharing their pride in neighborhood and place. And there was enormous amount of solidarity, obviously, within folks who were back in town. So it was fortuitous timing for us to be to launch this brand. Um, the growth of it over the first two years, uh, not necessarily just in sales as it was still a small operation, but in terms of just audience and response was, uh, really amazing for all of us who were involved. Um, and I'd say for me personally, the real challenge was because at the time I, I was still running a web development studio and had clients. Was this was trying to figure out? Do I still have clients, and where are they, and do they need my services? And so I had to pivot then to figure out what projects I could work on. And luckily, I was able to do some web development work around the recovery, uh, which kept some of the people I was working with employed. And there's a real parallel, I think, right now. Even though what we're dealing with right now is completely unprecedented, and it's this sort of need to hustle and figure out where you can. Um, find work and who you can potentially help. And if that means you're able to make a, a few bucks, then great. Um, so I, I think that my experience with Katrina prepared me to some degree for the current one, but 
now it's the sort of Katrina, it's a global Katrina that where no one can leave their home, which is completely new experience for, I think, everyone, uh, literally the entire world. So, Blake, do you have any, um, you know, based on that experience, it's a great story, but looking forward, I mean, what would you say to, to other, you know, entrepreneurs, startups, to anybody, right, that has a, a good idea or a company? What, what can they do? Where, how can they find those opportunities to help others and also to make a buck? Sure. Well, I've, I have been reaching out to other folks that I know who have been impacted by their entire career potentially being put on hold or needing to, a complete pivot. Uh, like right now, I'm talking to some of the uh, web streaming and video produ producers for uh, conferences and festivals. And we're talking about developing an online platform so you could technically have a virtual French Quarter Festival, or you could have a virtual conference. Um, and so it's something where I'm, in, I'm going to try and assist them with this build uh, online of this platform. And it shows that they're, you know, being very creative. We're trying to figure out how do we continue to do what we do, continue to use the skill sets we have and our contacts, and build a whole new way of, of you know, paying the bills and supporting our our clients. So I think one of the big challenges and opportunities for folks is just to figure out who is impacted by this and how can you build a business model around solving any of their problems using the skill sets and experience that you have, or at least your network uh, that you have. So uh, it definitely takes some creativity and some hustle and sort of thinking outside the box, of, you know, using that term. Um, to come up with it. But I think now is actually the time where you're going to see an enormous amount of entrepreneurial growth um, and new companies and new projects, new tools being developed. Um, so in that sense, it's exciting, but it is always terrible to have something, something catastrophic have to occur for new things to rise out of it. Blake, uh, with what's happened in the pandemic, uh, Obviously, online sales have gained against bricks and mortar. If you were meeting with somebody with a new idea, would you advise them to have any bricks and mortar? Uh, yeah, the brick and mortar thing is uh, worrisome in looking into the future. Uh, we're, we actually, within Locally, we developed a new tool called Sync Locally that we launched a few weeks ago that is an app that connects between our Locally platform where we pull in and, and organize and, and know what's in stock in the physical stores and can then push that dynamically to Shopify so someone can have an e-commerce site up fairly quickly, uh, which I think is now a complete necessity, if, any, if anything, to be able to power curbside pickup. Because you can still have a store which can tr you can treat like a warehouse so someone can buy something online, come by and pick it up, or do free local delivery. Uh, because free local delivery and curbside pickup is one of the only things out there that's faster than prime shipping. So the ability to use your your physical store as a warehouse as a means to get products in front of people in 30 minutes to an hour i think is a is a benefit and advantage that retailers who have physical stores have right now but would i personally right now drop seven grand on a really expensive rent in the french quarter probably not I'd, i would definitely wait it out and see what's going on uh, specifically with us in new orleans with the tourism market essentially at zero now and wondering when will it finally, if ever, get back to 
uh, where it was a, a year from now. It's a complete unknown. Um, so in the New Orleans market, I think everyone who owns a bar, everyone who owns a restaurant is sweating and wondering, am I going to be at 50% capacity, 60, 75? How long does it get to that point? And can I last to that point? Because some people's margins are such that if you have three or four months down 20, 25%, you're going to go out of business. So that's, I think, the huge worry within New Orleans itself. Um, but there's hope that being New Orleans and what New Orleans is and people not wanting to travel overseas or spend too much time on airplanes, that maybe we do become a, this travel hub again for people who live along the coast who can drive here. Um, you know, if gas really is <laughs> a buck 80 or whatever at some point, maybe people will start making the trek and coming to New Orleans because it's the most European experience you're going to have. Uh, without having to leave the country. Um, I mean, fingers are crossed by me and everyone else in the city that that happens. But um, would I sign a lease right now? No. Blake, I I'm curious, um, you know, something that you just said, you kind of looking at how small retailers generally have tight margins, right? And, and, and one of the things that I've read recently is, you know, the idea that really the conditions of the pandemic are favorable, let's say, relatively speaking, to larger retailers. And the idea being that we could see a lot of consolidation and a lot of mom and pops and stuff. I mean, do you, do you really feel like e-commerce is something that's enough of a lifeline for, for small businesses to survive beyond that? Or, or do you think that, you know, consumer habits really are just going to go back to... There's definitely going to be a, uh, once again, using the word solidarity with what I experienced with Katrina... There will be a lot of people who want to shop local, who know that if they don't shop local, they're not supporting the person who lives down the street from them who owns that store. They're not supporting local businesses. They're not bringing in local taxes. So my hope is that in New Orleans specifically, or just nationally, this, this effort that you know some large businesses like uh, Visa and stuff, Small Business Saturday, becomes a call across the country for you to support your local businesses, your main street. Um, and once people can start leaving the house and feel comfortable leaving the house and they can kind of break away from this sort of everyday Amazon type uh, addiction that I think is just, you know, obviously if you look at the stock price is amplified you know, greatly across the country. People will start supporting more of their local businesses and every local business has to have some digital presence, must have a website or something, some means for you to, be able to be messaged to take an order for pickup. I think you've probably seen half the restaurants in New Orleans step up their curbside and local pickup game. And so I think that's just going to be the new normal. It's just going to continue. I definitely view my shops as potentially getting walk-in traffic, probably nowhere near the scale as we used to, utilizing them as warehouses for local delivery. Um, and I probably am going to become much more reliant on my own e-commerce business. It's going to be a brave new world. Blake, thank you so much for sharing your insights with us. Blake Haney is the owner of Dirty Coast and Bayou Brands and co-founder of Locally.com. Blake, thanks again for joining us today on Out to Lunch, Louisiana. Thanks for having me. And thank you for joining us on this special edition of Out to Lunch, Louisiana. We've edited the conversations to fit into the time slot here on your NPR station. You can hear longer versions of these conversations wherever you normally get your Out to Lunch podcast. If you're not an Out to Lunch podcast subscriber, search for Out to Lunch, Out to Lunch Baton Rouge, 
or Out to Lunch Acadiana on your podcast app. The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical producer is Eric Merle. And photos from this show on our website and social media are taken by Jill LaFleur. I'm Peter Raschuti in New Orleans. I'm Christian Mater in Lafayette. And I'm Stephanie Regal in Baton Rouge. If you're in an essential industry or you're able to return to work, remember to take care of yourself. If you're not going to work, stay home and stay safe. We'll see you back here next week for more Out to Lunch, Louisiana. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com and by Hancock Whitney. Hancock Whitney is here for families, here for businesses, here for communities during this challenging time. Visit HancockWhitney.com slash COVID-19 for the latest. And by... Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. Mitchell Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. You can hear Mitchell's music anywhere great jazz is sold or streamed and at MitchellForeman.com. 